<laughs> so the first uh, thing, well, why are we doing this? Uh, as a, my responsibility as a priest, there is only so much I can do in a Sunday morning sermon, right? right. <laughs> to be able to teach, to be able to uh, attend to the flock where there's the pastoral element that can happen in confession or having coffee or sitting and talking, but then there's just general uh, needing to understand scripture, the tradition, uh, to be able to gain the mind of Christ, which for Orthodox is also right there flowing from that, the mind of the church about things. Uh, I already probably, for some of you, if you're used to Orthodox sermons, I push it a little bit longer than what you might be used to of like a 10-minute homily, more like 20 minutes. A lot of that is because I'm trying to fit in a little bit more because Sunday morning becomes the, one of the only spaces where you can actually be able to proclaim something, to be able to teach something. So part of the reason for starting these, the teen started at first and I realized this could actually be a model that we could do for women and men. It's not to supplant small groups or if folks want to have small groups. Uh, it is to be a venue to hopefully be a kind of backbone where there can be a broader group, and maybe this is the only timing that people can have to be able to gather, but then others uh, create some small groups. I know there is currently a small group that meets on Zoom because we have folks who live an hour and then a time change away, <laughs> which then means two hours, and I can't remember the math of how exactly that works out, but sometimes it means it's a two-hour thing instead of just a one-hour thing. So what I'm hoping that we can do, and this is... Uh, find some folks who would be able to host this doesn't it's there's leadership aspects to it but it doesn't have to just be you know that you're leading something that you have to like be the one who studied everything and is ready to like teach everybody else that's not really what it is it is more about time because also coffee hour so we've got Sunday service we have the other services of the church this is to feed your heart Coffee hour also functions in a certain way, but let's be honest, coffee hour is uh, hard to navigate <laughs> space-wise. It is also a pressurized environment. Kids running around, uh, all sorts of other activities happening, and there's just a lot of people, period. Uh, and there's always new people <laughs> on top of it all. So there's just a lot of stresses and newness. So trying to create an atmosphere uh, where we, and I'm a, I hear Thomas. Uh, an atmosphere where we can adjust if we need to, but at least some kind of like monthly thing where I'm trying to teach, uh, draw something from scripture. Uh, and right now we're looking at, at the book of Titus uh, as a way to enter into uh the mind of the church and you can see where we'll be able to talk about because scripture immediately brings up multiple things question marks like what is what is uh, a bishop what 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 is leadership what is uh, in titus 2 it has older women to younger women older men to younger men you have a whole uh, explication of uh, the household of god the life's responsibilities duties uh, i would say the gospel even more specifically fleshed out for us in our day-to-day -day existence. Uh, that is, Sunday morning, there's a kind of sacramental, the encounter with Christ, uh, 
preparation for and reception of Holy Communion, but then there's like coffee hour and everything after that, right? That is the structure. Uh, like if you think of like a human, it's like we have our heart that needs to be fed, our inner person, but then we have the rest of our life that our inner person is not absent from that, but we still uh, need to learn about and understand, and we don't know what we don't know. So scripture is the main source for this. So with small groups, uh, I'll be at, this is to plant a seed. If there's folks who would like to host, especially, you know, folks who are a little bit more regionally based, if we have like something in Oak Ridge or something more West Knoxville or South Knoxville, uh, these are places where folks get together, figure out something that works for your schedule and meet up. So if somebody would like to host or do something like that, uh, you can let me know and then we can go from there. Okay, does anyone have any questions about any of that? All right, yeah, please. So we have a, meet, a group meets Tuesdays at 7 via Zoom, and uh, if anybody wants to join in, that would be fine. Mm -hmm. I know that Audrey had, the, the, there was a Saturday morning thing that was happening. It's not, this isn't to replace it. I talked with Audrey, uh, but I also know what gets challenging is and one hand, it's really it's kind of easy to just get together and chat. Schedule-wise, it's not as easy. But what I'm saying is, to want contentful stuff is a little bit harder. Uh, and this is why we have folks who are specifically tasked with helping with these things, <laughs> uh, ordained clergy who go and study these things, and like it's kind of what happens with their entire life, <laughs> dedicated to these things to be able to help. So. Uh, let's uh, begin with prayer, and then we will dive into the text, okay? O heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art ever present and fillest all things, treasure blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity, and save our souls, O good one. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with pure light, thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. And plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee do we ascribe glory together with thy fathers from everlasting, let all holy good and life creating spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Is anyone familiar with that second prayer? <clears throat> you are. Where, where, is, where it is it? Where is it found? Where Where is it? I know it, but I'm... I don't know. But I came across it um, through Dr. Janine uh, Constantini. Is that from the the podcast that she has? Yeah. So that prayer does she do it before she like starts her? Okay, I've I've wanted to listen to that podcast, but I haven't. So this is another great thing to learn about other resources, right? So there's Doctor. Uh, oh my goodness! Now that I have to say the whole name, I'm going to mess up. Dr. Constantino, that's all I'll say. <laughs> She's a presbytera out in California. She has a PhD in biblical studies. She has, I believe it's on ancient faith. I forget the name of the podcast. It's probably one of those, you know, quote from the Psalms or something that they just make a title of something like everybody's want to do. You take a Bible passage or something and make it into, well, every thought captive is the same thing. Uh, <laughs> so you have uh, her, you have Father Stephen DeYoung, who just uh, published, he's been publishing a few books, just recently a book about introduction to the Bible. Uh, but he also has where he's basically just walking through 
the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter. Uh, so I suggest if you want to dig more into those things, do that. Uh, there's another uh, resource called The Path, which is Father Thomas Soroka, and this is just a audio reading of the daily lectionary readings. And it's OCA, I believe. I don't think it's GOA. By what I mean by that, there's little variants in the lectionary. We're not going to spend any time talking about that. There's just some differences sometimes, okay? Uh, so what you also get with the path is that he'll typically read something that's a commentary from the fathers or something uh, related to uh, that gospel and epistle reading. Does anyone else have any other kind of Ike podcast as a resource because it doesn't require you to sit down and carve out an hour to prepare yourself that 10 minutes to sit down and read the 10 to 15 minutes of actually reading the distraction, the reading, the distract, you know, when you have everything else going on. Right. So you can sit, I was a lot of podcasts when I'm like making dinner or cleaning up or driving. Right. So that's how I try to fill my time uh, when I don't have anything audibly going on besides screaming or questions from children. <laughs> There's also a lot of things on Spotify, like you could listen to the book of Titus if you have six minutes to spare. <laughs> Where is it on Spotify? I've Spotify. tried, is it on Spotify? I've tried looking on different podcasts because I've wanted There's to, a ton of them. Just people reading it? Yeah, I got one of a lady reading um, from NKJV. It is. I know you can get uh, recordings of the Psalter. You can get, I mean, these are all good things to have uh, going on in the background. And it's okay to feel like, on one hand, like, if I'm going to hear scripture read out loud, I need to, like, be paying, like, as much attention as I am during the services. (laughs) 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 Which is something, again, like, I, I suggest... As we're talking, part of what I'm wanting to do in all of this is to talk about and provide an example of how to read scripture. Because I think what happens a lot as many are converts or even growing up in the church, scripture is not an easy thing to just pick up and go, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians today. You're going to get about a chapter or two in and go, what in the world is going on? I don't understand the metaphors, the rhetoric. What is Paul doing? What is he talking about? So... What I'm trying to help in doing this is also to provide tools and example of how to engage with and understand scripture so it doesn't seem so daunting. On one hand, it's always kind of daunting because it is the word of God. But on the other hand, it is something like anything else. If you were to pick up, has anyone tried to pick up Tolstoy and read like War and Peace? How many pages did you get in? Ten. Yeah. Why, why did you stop? Didn't go anywhere. <laughs> One of my things is like Genesis. It's like, how many names am I being introduced to? And so, but at least like Tolstoy is one thing, besides the f- fact that he's problematic for many reasons, uh, theologically, but <laughs> there is a whole different thing with scripture that it is, this really is like life. This is, and the fathers uh, really, I mean, this is what they're soaked in. This is what they're reading all the time. I think when you, you convert to orthodoxy, there's a time, I know practically, I became orthodox, and I was reading all the heady stuff, the theological stuff, and what happened for a few years is I didn't, I heard this, I'm soaked it in, in liturgy, but I wasn't reading anything anymore, because there were so many other things to read. 
in some ways there's some naturalness to that because I had grown up reading the Bible, but I also should not have stopped <laughs> because you'll realize very quickly that this is, that there's sometimes this gap like, oh, I've become Orthodox, it all changes. There are things that change. There's other things that don't really change that much. Like St. Seraphim Sarov, to use somebody uh, like closer to us, so not like 4th century or something, he was reading the, the gospel every single day. And that's part of what his rule was. He read the gospel every day. One of the things that he did uh, around his hermitage is he named uh, things like trees and valleys and mountains, things from the Bible. Uh, so he would say, like, that's Mount Zion or that's Mount Tabor, that these trees. So he just kind of, like, soaked his world with scripture in an imaginative but, uh, but helpful way for him to, to live into what he was reading. So... Uh, I'm hoping in delving into scripture, this helps encourage you uh, to engage and do this on your own. There are commentaries out there that are orthodox. There are other commentaries that can be helpful too. Uh, you're welcome, of course, to email me and ask, you know, I want to read the Psalms. What would you suggest? And I could suggest a few books because there's one aspect of devotional reading but if you do devotional reading without actually understanding, it can, like, you can read the Psalms and be like, I don't know what the re this rebellion that they're talking about. <laughs> I don't know what is going on. So it helps to piece these things together so that you can uh, feed yourself and come to understand Scripture better. So, let's see here. Any questions or anything about scripture or hesitancies about approaching scripture uh, your own challenges that you have encountered I just had a general question so Frank has this bible are, are yep. all orthodox bibles exactly the same like if you just pick up a book that says this is an orthodox bible are you good or do you have to still because <laughs> in the catholics there's several different versions <sighs> alright great question of this exact all right, so the Orthodox Bible, there's going to be, I'm going to have to deconstruct some ideas that we come with the idea of Bible, period. Because of the printing press, because I have in my hand all of this, this Protestant canon of scripture that's in this one, right? The, the church fathers, nobody had and walked around with little Bibles, right? They would have scrolls. <laughs> they would have, this is part of the reason, like, you can see it reflected liturgically what we do. What's on the, the altar? It's the Gospels, right? Somebody else has the Apostolos, the Epistle book, somewhere else. Uh, and even in the Epistle book, it doesn't have everything. And then you have another book that is the readings from the Old Testament. So, you can already see we are so used to the Bible like this, even if we grow up Orthodox, this is just culturally what we're used to, right? But the reality in the early church is the canon of, so I'll say canon of Orthodox, the way they approach things is very different than a lot of Protestants. Uh, I would say it's similar to Roman Catholicism in that the first millennia, the first few hundred years, you didn't have the same... Uh, there was a there was debate about stuff. There wasn't just like it came from Thomas Nelson or Zondervan, and this is the Bible. That's it. 
Because you are oh, a King James version. That's a whole other thing since we're in East Tennessee or this area of the country, right? Where a King James version is like fell out of the sky. Uh, but the Old Testament for Orthodox, the Septuagint, if you've heard the word Septuagint, this is the translation of the Old Testament from the Greek, sorry, from the Hebrew into the Greek. So most, like this Bible, and this is why we have uh, translation issues, this Bible, the Old Testament section of it, is the Masoretic text, which is not what historically the Orthodox Church relied upon. Masoretic is the Hebrew text. We can get into all sorts of little, and I don't know all the little details because there's a whole lot, because there's manuscript evidence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. There is uh, the patriarchal text. The ecumenical patriarch has a text uh, that they, uh, I believe it's most of the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, that is kind of like they're synodally approved. The Russian church has a synodally approved uh, translation. Uh, so you have, in the English, we do not have a synodally approved translation. So there are many Bibles that float around. The Orthodox Study Bible is not even, it's, it's approved, but it's also got issues about, and by issues, I don't mean like glaring Christological issues, which could be something uh, like the, the New Revised Standard Version with uh, certain passages in the Old Testament glazes over prophetic things and says like, it's not a virgin who's going to give birth. It's just a young woman. Just things like that where they, they, erase what historically the church has always read and seen in the text. This is what uh, Parthenos means. It's virgin, right? So you get with uh, the Orthodox Church in North America and the fact, do you realize 20, 30 years ago how much stuff was in English for Orthodox? You had a lot of liturgical stuff, but even liturgical stuff would have been like the Divine Liturgy, Vespers, but like if you wanted to do a service for like on a to like, I don't know, the third Tuesday in April, you better do Slavonic or Greek because that the service for that saint is probably not in English. We have come a long way. I'm probably pushing more 40, 50 years ago what I was just saying. But even just like materials that we have at hand now, the fact that the library, like uh, you have all of this stuff. This is really within the past 10 years that we've had such an explosion of stuff. So to get, uh, as Kelly was joking about, like a cutesy Bible, that, that could possibly happen at some point, but we probably need at least another decade or two before we get to that point. I, I'm saying that because what the Orthodox Study Bible only came out, I think, 15 years ago, or I think around when I became Orthodox, it was like 15 years ago. Coming in in 2000, the new, the, just the New Testament Psalms wasn't out quite yet. It came out. No, that's right. Yeah, it came out like around 2001, 2002, 2004, which the New Testament and, and Psalms. And so this was, we were like waiting. Mm-hmm. When's it coming? When's it coming? And so, the, and there, there are critics of Orthodox Study Bible out in the Orthodox world too. There's always going to be critics. This is just life, right? Uh, my suggestion is stick with the Revised Standard Version or the New King James. And if you read King James, that's fine. Uh, I wouldn't sweat at this level. You all are not out there writing theological treatises. Uh, I hope you're not out there arguing with people on the internet. <laughs> That's typically young man domain. <laughs> uh, but this is fine. Like this is, I, I, I rely on this. I have a Septuagint. You can buy, even in the past five years, there has been more English translations of the Septuagint. And it's fascinating to look back and forth between the Masoretic and Septuagint because then it even makes some of our feast days make a little bit more sense because the Greek text has a different way of approaching certain things or different vocabulary. 
So what I would suggest is get a standard, like New King James, Revised Standard. If you get the Orthodox Study Bible, great. I, I'm not a huge fan of like the Living Translation. The NIV has problems in certain areas because it introduces kind of, uh, I'll say, uh, little r reformed theology into the in there. I'll say like Baptistic. It's uh, not really a word, but uh, th- they made choices that was, uh, what was that informed. Called? What the new the NIV? The NIV. You've probably never encountered it, Mary. You're Roman Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> They wouldn't read from that at St. Joseph's or the Jerusalem Bible. Like those kind of like those are actually pretty decent translations. Or even going back, uh, what is the older? I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyways, so great question to start off at the very beginning. What should I read? Well, if you have a good English, I would say more normative translation, just stick with that. Because right now we're not at the point of like deep dive into like word study. We're just trying to get an understanding. Uh, so one of the things, like reading Titus, Titus, part of this is a short book, right? Yeah. Three chapters. You can read it in like 15, 20 minutes. So the, in general, I would suggest, and the, the fathers talk like this too, if you're, if you're reading something, you need to understand what the basic uh, outline, this is just basic school on one level too, like if you're going to read Jeremiah, what will happen? You get three chapters in, you're like, I don't know what's going on. And then you get bogged down and you go look at, start Googling stuff. And it is best to just sit down and read Titus from beginning to end. Uh, read, then go back, read it again for comprehension. Then go back and then you can slow down and try to break down things, looking at the structure, because it helps. This is what we did in seminary, reading the fathers. We just sit down because at first you read something, you're just like, oh my goodness, this is so much information. What am I going to do with it? And then you read it the second time and you go, all right, what's the skeleton? Like, because the fathers are very clear about this. Scripture's a little bit more complicated than this. Fathers just tell you, I'm doing this and then this and then this. And then lo and behold, they do this and then this and then this. And they even there's like transitions. You can see, oh, now I'm moving to this thing, right? Scripture is, Paul, I, I wish Paul did that. Paul doesn't write like that. He does have form and he does follow form. So, for example, like the beginning of Titus, it is a standard salutation greeting of that time. That's how you wrote to people. Paul likes to add a whole lot more stuff, and we'll see as we read, like, a sentence that then breaks down and gets more complicated as he goes. Um, But the primacy of Scripture in our life, uh, it really is. Yes, there's coming to church and sacramental uh, participation, and something I think we tend to forget is reading of Scripture, the breaking of bread. We talk about the breaking of bread with communion but the fathers also talk about the breaking of bread that happens before communion you break the word of god you understand you have the scriptures read and then you have it proclaimed and uh explained in the sermon and then you move to another aspect of the word of god being broken for you uh to be eaten so we eat at least three times a day unless we're doing different intermittent fasting all the different crazy things going on right now uh But you can see, like, the fathers assume we're reading scripture. So this needs to be something uh, deep within our practices. St. John Chrysostom uh, tells us, from this, the lack of reading scripture, knowledge of scripture, uh, is from this ignorance is that countless evils have arisen. From this, it is that the plague of heresies have broken (laughs) out. 
From this there are negligent lives. From this there are labors without advantage. For as men deprived of this daylight would not walk aright, so they that look not into the gleaming of the Holy Scriptures must be frequently and constantly sinning, and that they are walking in the worst darkness. Why is it darkness? Because you don't even really know, right? Like Scripture does give you framework. It does give you a, a, not just an internal, like, I have a Savior, but it says, like, what, are my, what is my relationship with my husband supposed to look like? What is his, what is his responsibilities and duties? How, what are my duties and responsibilities to my kids? What are my duties and responsibilities to people around me, to my neighbor, uh, to the way church life is supposed to go? Because church life is not easy, just like family life is not easy, right? Uh, we know love requires, as we worship a God who loves us and died for us, that that love that happens is going to be a continual cross. And, but that needs, just like our Lord in teaching us, ways in which uh, we need to learn how to die or how to live aright, because in that dying is how we're actually going to live. Yes, Chelsea? Matushka, sorry. <laughs> oh. All right, you're going to have to expand on that one. totally framed around a hierarchical understanding of if you're going to be in the world with others there are naturally going to be ways in which we interact with others based on our relationship to them and to God and to ourselves so it's it's a great book but anyway, I was just kind of making it aside because that book is very immersed with scripture and therefore well, the scriptures the are like all, it's called Boundaries by um, Cloud and Townsend two okay. psychologists so one of the things uh, that Matushka uh, reminded me of before this, and it's something, if you want to listen to the men's recording, you can, because what, we end up talking about different things, lo and behold. Like, what's uh, the Antimentian on the altar and the bishops? And, like, we talk about, like, but now we're talking about boundaries. <laughs> and we don't, like, I want us to do and use Titus and mainly be scripture, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to go through and, like, talk about the divine liturgy or talk about other things. Uh, I want scripture to be the main focus. Uh, but if we wanted to, for example, Chelsea's uh, been asking uh, if I would think about doing the boundaries book, I need to read it. There's other books that are out there that are good. Uh, I'm totally open to opening it up to talk about other things. This isn't just like we're going to have Bible study every single time. Right. Uh, but I do think, <laughs> would be a good idea for us to if we do something else then we come back and we do a book of the bible and we do something else and come back and do a book of the bible so um let's see here um, yeah please maybe it's just me because i didn't grow up reading the bible but it i mean sometimes it's like what are we you got to have a phd to know what it's saying and that's why all these phds are having podcasts to teach it I mean, sometimes I don't get a whole lot. I don't know. It's probably just me. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not just you. That's part of the reason why we're doing this. So some of this exactly to be able to have those kind of questions when you're coming across something. Uh, I hope especially, for example, when we get to um, Lent, where we have 
three Old Testament books that we're reading throughout Lent, Genesis, Proverbs, and Isaiah, that when we're doing these, that we will do like Genesis. So it also helps because honestly, what I try, I'm trying to do with pre-sanctified homilies, like this last Lent, I did all Proverbs. I just stuck with Proverbs for every single homily because I'm reading it. And so it just makes sense. So if we're doing Genesis, then I'm probably going to preach at every single pre-sanctified. It'll probably flow into Sunday. But that's also good because if we're all reading the same things and being able to draw from, because something I challenging for me is like, I grew up reading scripture pretty intensely because of the way that I grew up. So in some ways, I know and think about things, but I also, I don't want to assume, but I also, it's hard not to assume that everybody knows the basic story of Elijah or the basic story of Moses or the basic story of David. And you can kind of get, because guess what? The church actually presumes that too. And I say that because you listen to the liturgy. Uh, you, if you come to a vigil for a major feast, and it's like a Traparian is making a passing reference to a, a, a prophecy in Ezekiel. This one is making like the way for the Feast of the Cross. You have Jacob crossed his hands when he was blessing his children. And it's, this is a foreshadowing of the cross, right? But in the text, like, I didn't even remember that. I'm not saying, like, I should remember every single thing, but just, like, Deacon was like, oh, yeah, I just read that the other day. Like, because uh, I like to go back. Is that a Septuagint thing? No, he did this. And they're like, oh, you're doing it wrong. He's like, no, I'm not doing it wrong. <laughs> but if you just hear that, and you're like, I don't know what that's talking about. So part of the encouragement is if we're going to get the most out of and this isn't just pragmatic or utilitarian, but it's also to feed our own selves because there's a consolation in seeing the wisdom of God and how all of this is interconnected and works together. I remember in high school when I was digging into scripture, seriously uh, starting to see all the connections and seeing how it all works together and seeing how the narrative and all of that, it was incredibly encouraging to me because it wasn't just some older folks in the, uh, the congregation saying, God is this, da, 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 da. But like, I can actually see like how it's all connected, how it's not just like simple, like prophecies are being fulfilled, but like, wow, this is an incredibly insightful. <laughs> and every time I come back, there's more going on here. So, so it seems like it's, you're not just going to read it and get stuff out of it. You're going to have to reread it and reread it. So the fathers talk about, that God made it almost like a divine puzzle to help teach us because if it was something like a text message or a meme or a little note in the mail, it's really simple. I mean, maybe memes can be meta in three different ways, but part of what it is, it's not a game. It's not him playing a game with us. I'm saying puzzle is a try. Like what it is that the fathers talk about, it's middle uh, riddles and mysteries. I mean, scripture talks about this, right? Christ, they're like, what is he talking about? I don't understand. And he says, like, there is, this is only going to be revealed to uh, the babes, right? To the children. Those, it, there is a, a mystery. Uh, even the apostles didn't understand. And so scripture itself is something that, like anything worthwhile, requires a dedication, uh, uh, almost like a, a, a mystery, 
I'm thinking of like murder mystery. You get the clues together and like, oh, what's this? I'm how like, oh, here's Christ. I see Christ in Jacob in these different ways. I see Christ, and this is the biggest thing. Where is Christ in this text? That's probably especially the Old Testament. Where's Christ? Who is Christ? Who is uh, imaging Christ? Who is failing in a way that Christ is actually faithful? Uh, how is if we start from Genesis? Uh, how is this echo of these problems and how uh, it goes throughout Genesis and just gets worse and worse and worse? The Tower of Babel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, to then, how does Christ actually? reverse Babel? How does Christ actually uh, reconcile brothers? How does Christ actually, you know, so we can do some of this. This is what we're doing. Yes. Sorry. The job from the boundaries book again. <laughs> the ten laws of boundaries. And the ninth one is the law of proactivity. And it's all about how Christ tells us to ask, seek, and knock. So it comes intrinsically out of the way that God designed the world for us to have to seek him, right? Because he's not going to do our work for us. That doesn't mean he doesn't meet us. So we do our work, he meets us. It's not, I mean, there's extreme circumstances where he completely redeems somebody because they're completely in the darkness and like Paul, you know, I mean, there's, but I think for most of us, we have the ability to like, this natural desire almost for God of seeking anyway. So. So, and I can, we can talk about different, so the thing that's more popular uh, to talk about in the West in this way, the East does this too, uh, Lectio Divina, which is basically the, the slow divine reading, where it's the slow reading of scripture. And so I'm honestly, this is basically what we're going to do with Titus is slowly just go through and like, what does it mean that Paul says he's a bondservant of Christ? What is slavery to Christ? And then to contemplate that. Am I a slave to Christ? What am I a slave to? And then you can think about, and this is how the fathers think. You can hear it in their homilies a lot. Then you think, if you've been reading scripture and you have the kind of horizon out there, you can think of Paul talks about this, right? And Romans, like, who, and Bob Dylan talks about this in one of his songs you got to serve somebody it's like you have two choices there really is any other way you're going to serve sin and therefore death or you're going to serve christ and life this is the two ways that goes all the way back to the garden basically right so this is hopefully what in just modeling this and talking about this chrysostom can be helpful the challenge with chrysostom as reed will tell you as you know because reed will read this out loud <laughs> Uh, is that our translation, some of our translations from St. John Chrysostom were done by Victorians. Uh, This isn't just a dig at Victorians, but they, as being classicists, as in like classically trained linguists, uh, Greek and Latin, they, their ways of writing up things is not how we would talk or write or translate things now. So you can try to read a commentary of St. John Chrysostom and you're going to have the same challenge of reading scripture because you're like, hold on a second. What is it? What, where, where does this... I mean, I have to, when I read them, it'll take me three times sometimes to read through it and be like, okay, now I understand because I had to read the whole thing. So I'm also hoping this can be encouraging uh, that you can dig in and get something out of it even if you don't fully understand uh, late Roman road systems, slavery system, like all of that stuff. You don't have to, to know all of those things. Uh, and able for the spirit to operate 
through it, or Christ the word resounding through it so that he can speak something to you, uh, to form you, to bring you to him. Let's start reading Titus. Good. (laughs) Will somebody, let's go ahead and read the first chapter. Uh, Would somebody with a loud voice like to read that first chapter? Go ahead. The epistle of Paul, the apostle to Titus, author, the greeting and church tradition. Both oh, can you start at the, the text oh. itself? Yes, the text. One, one. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. It's okay. So Paul, a bondservant of God. Yeah, there you go. Paul, a bondservant servant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God and cannot lie promised before time began but as in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Ordination of sound elders. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Holding fast the faithful word as he had been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Can you stop right there, Janine? I'm realizing that we've already used a lot of our time, so I wanted to jump right in uh, because there's no way we're going to get past, like, probably verse 4. Mm-hmm. So, because uh, we didn't with the men either, uh, which is fine. So, what is going on with Titus? Why is Paul writing this to Titus? Is it like an instruction? It's an instruction, right? Because what you have, our Lord, uh, at least it's not revealed in the Gospels, he kind of gives a, uh, you will not uh, rule like the Gentiles, right? You're going to be servants to the apostles. But the uh, Titus... uh, resides if we're going to kind of label books of the new testament this falls within the pastoral epistles this is paul uh basically organizing and giving structure to nascent christian communities you see this happening in the book of acts right because it was we follow paul or uh the journey of paul peter uh you have like uh, in acts 15 the gathering together of james uh, the Bishop of Jerusalem with the elders. The elders is another word for us for priest, basically. 
Do you know where pre, where, why we say the word priest? It's an anglicized form of presbyter, basically. So priest is just an ang Englishing of the language uh, for priest, right? A presbyter, which is what an elder is. Uh, so technically, basically, I'm an elder, a presbyter, right? Ordained by an episcopos or an overseer who is a bishop. Uh, what you have with the pastoral epistles is then giving structure, a skeleton, organizing these communities because, well, you need organization. How does uh, orga organisms, we can sometimes put like institutional, you hear people rail against like the institutional this and that or the institutional church, and then there's something else. But for the church, there is always an organism has to have structure. I have a skeleton. I have different systems that are working in me. So therefore, to be a living, breathing, growing uh, organism, because we sometimes put like machine versus organism as if like organism doesn't have structure, but <laughs> organisms have structure. That's how they live. <laughs> Remember cell walls? <laughs> like... Uh, I have to go way back in my head for that one. I was not good at those subjects. Um, but what you have with Paul, uh, he's specifically writing to Titus. Why did he leave him in Crete? If you have a chance to go to Crete, I highly suggest it. But <laughs> you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders. You should set things in order for, because things are lacking. You, there's there's trouble brewing. There's issues. Uh, the New Testament has issues in the church from the very beginning. Literally, a lot of the reasons why epistles are written is because there's trouble. Not from without, but trouble within. <laughs> there's heresy. There's gross sin. By gross, I mean, like, <laughs> gross, <laughs> but also, like, awful, right? Like, not even the Gentiles will, do, will put up with some of the things that the Corinthians were putting up with. Um, but you have, uh, specifically, uh, that... Titus is sent because he's going to start appointing elders. He's going to start putting priests in place. And these men have to have certain qualifications. And beyond that, uh, there's a very specifically because why does he need, what is the chaos that he's specifically dealing with? We didn't read the verses, but it comes up right at the end of verse 9. <coughs> Yeah. You need a priest. He needs to have all of these, I'll say, moral uh, principles, you know, virtues. I'll say virtues. But one of the things especially important that he's going to underline is that it has to be somebody who teaches with sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict. So Paul is giving to Titus, uh, who we know uh, has been on his journeys with him, uh, and this is where knowing broader scripture, right? Part of what happens as you read scripture is that it's going to echo and you're going to bring in the book of Acts and try to remember. And you might even go over to the book of Acts and reread sections. Like it would be good to reread the section where Paul is laying on the hands of elders to be shepherds, uh, which is what we read the epistle on the Sundays of the ecumenical councils. When we celebrate the ecumenical councils, it's Paul ordaining elders and saying there's wolves that are going to come among the flock. There is challenges that are going to happen, uh, and he exhorts them, and he, you know, weeps, uh, exhorting them to love and protect. So what we have uh, with reading this, you might think, well, 
I'm not going to be put in a position to do this, but we need to know this because the Orthodox Church has always, this isn't just bishops and then priests running things, right? It is the entire community, and you have a strong history in the Orthodox Church of theologians or those who uh, know the tradition, scripture, etc., who will critique and rebuke priests and bishops. <laughs> it's not just a top-down thing. It is a conciliar. The Orthodox Church is conciliar. So that means everyone is uh, in this together, but like an organism, you do need to have a head. <laughs> You need to have a nervous system. You need to have a heart. You need to have feet. You need to have hands, right? So everyone has a particular place, and this is how Paul talks. Uh, but it's good. You might be wondering, okay, so we're going to read about like what a, an elder, what his qualifications are. But it is good for us to know this. One, so that we can uh, help discern our own ways of mm, how I, discerning what is good and right for the, the flock. But these are all, are these virtues outside of being a husband of one wife? <laughs> that is for men, that's a particular. But these are all virtues that all of us need to be living into for the sake of the body of Christ. Uh, any questions about these first few uh, sentences, verses? I have a question in verse 7, because he's saying, appointing elders, but then he's using the word at least in this translation. Yeah. So is this specifically about bishop or is it about so, priest? Yeah, that's what yeah. Or both. <coughs> or at that time, Great. There's another reason why I'm preparing the same thing for both men and women because it also doesn't double up. But this came up as well with the men. So what you have in the early church, uh, and it develops a little bit over time, there was... Uh, there, you can tell that there's office of overseer, episcopoi, where we get episcopal uh, bishop, and presbyter, who there, to this day, the way that we talk about a bishop is that he is a priest. He's just the priest over the priest, right? Uh, and so in the early church, and especially it's, it's uh, isn't crystal clear in certain pastoral epistles uh, that this differentiation, but you can already see a differentiation because who's going to appoint the elders? Who's going to ordain, lay hands on the elders? The who, who is the bishop? Priest over the priest. Right, but who? Oh, Titus. Titus. Oh, right. That picture in the email that I sent out, that even the from the first email, but even this one that I think I sent out on Thursday. Uh, did you pick up that the the there is a relic that his. St. Titus's head is there in Crete and Heraclean in a side chapel for St. Tito is the name of the church because Tito is a way of, that's a diminutive of Titus, right? So uh, I have venerated the head of Titus there in Crete uh, at his ch a church dedicated to him. That's a side altar from the main altar. But this, uh, and he has a his skull is encased in a mitre, basically, because he's a bishop. So we have already in the text He's telling, go put elders in place. Uh, but it is also, we'll look at these, to be a bishop, you, are, you need to have these qualifications too. The other thing that I would say is you can see uh, if the bishop was to come, if Archbishop Alexander or Bishop Grossom or a visiting uh, bishop who has the blessing of Archbishop Alexander to be here, <laughs> uh, whoever is standing in front 
unless the bishop blessed me to like do vespers, and he wouldn't be doing vespers typically, uh, whoever's standing in front, there's only one place in front of the altar, basically, unless there's multiple bishops and they kind of share that ministry of standing there. Uh, there is already, if you're going to have leadership in a, a community, there's one person who is offering up the sacrifice. There's one person who is uh, leading the prayers. And so very early on, you have... Um, St. Ignatius uh, talks like this, that you have the bishop is a representation or icon of Christ. Uh, the priests are not, are, are when gathered together with the bishop, they're a representation or icon of the angels. Uh, that the deacons then are a, a different representation. So you have bishop, priests, uh, and deacons doing various things, different ministries, but very early in the church, you would have had one bishop over a metropolitan area, and because he can't go to all the churches himself and pastor in the way that you would need, he set, like what's going on here, he set priests in his, uh, to work with his blessing to basically do exactly what these elders are supposed to do. You got another question? No, I think, well, I was going to ask, then would a bishop be allowed to be married? Because, yes. Okay. That, that is uh, evident in the text, the history. Uh, I believe it is pretty much understood and accepted that St. Gregory of Nyssa was married, who is a bishop. Uh, the coming to, basically, this is an internal uh, synodal decision within the Orthodox Church to make monastics or celibates bishops. For the reason, this happens, I think, at least a millennia into the church. Uh, it was already happening a lot because, all right, let's just be practical here. If you have a metropolitan area, you don't have iPhones, <laughs> uh, cars, public transportation the way, you'd be in a chariot or something, right? You have to govern or oversee, take care of, shepherd, all these different metaphors, thousands of people. And even into the hinterlands, right? Because there's suburbs and there's, and they have corpiscopos who are like bishops who are out uh, in the sticks, as it were. Uh, you are going to need, your life is the church. So yes, there was examples of uh, married bishops, but they started to become few and far between, between because they didn't want the responsibility in the job. And it required a kind of dedication and time that... The church decided we need to have monastics basically do this to prepare them to be able to do it. Is this a perfect system? Does it create like every single time A plus situations? No. But there is a reason why it has come this way. Has there been discussions and debates about returning back to having married bishops? There has been. There have been. But right now, the, the way that the church operates is celibate. Oh, a married priesthood, rather than the Roman Catholics who went the direction, kind of the same thinking that I'm talking about, down to the parochial level at every parish with celibate clergy uh, very early on, more like 7th, 8th century, if I'm remembering correctly. What are some things, what, what does, what delineates a priest and a bishop? Like, what are things that bishops can do that priests cannot do, and what are things that priests can do that bishops cannot do? Well, that doesn't work that way. What are things that priests cannot do that only bishops can do? Wow, you got to one that usually people... So, chrism, 
consecrate the chrism, ordain. Do you know how many bishops have to be together to ordain another bishop? It can't just be one bishop. It has to be at least two or three. It's for the sake of communion, synodally, etc. Otherwise, we'd have a whole lot of Vagante bishops running around. Is it only bishops? I don't know this is a question. Is it only bishops that can teach up and coming, or um, priests at a seminary? No, seminary is... Uh, a full church effort. Okay. Anybody and everybody. Okay. Lay men, lay women, ordained deacons, bishops. I had Archbishop Alexander for uh, my first semester for a class. Okay. But that was because he was also a professor at Marquette for years. and So it's basically if you have the qualifications, you get to teach. Was he a bishop at that time? Yeah. <clears throat> so he would like fly in to do one class and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> There, there are two other things, consecrate churches. You realize this is not a consecrated church because this was never the plan that this was good to be the church, right? This was a transitional building. So this has never been consecrated. Once you consecrate a church, you, do you realize what is involved in consecrating a church? You basically baptize and chrismate. I, okay, I was about to ask because I, know, I mean, Archbishop Dimitri uh-huh. came early on and, and there were, you know, but, but so it was never consecrated. Correct. Like the, the bells were consecrated. Right. So what happens in a church is you basically in the altar, and our altar does not have this, you would put relics and you seal the relics with wax into Mary, have you seen? Yeah. At your church back home? Did you see? Yeah. So you seal relics basically into the altar because historically the church, the Eucharist is always celebrated over the, the relics of martyrs. Uh, and saints. So you see this in like uh, Chrysostom's baptismal instructions where he's going out into the cemetery basically after Pascha with all the newly illumined and he's doing a sermon basically saying like see these martyrs imitate these martyrs. Like, can you imagine after Pascha you're in the graveyard and you got Chrysostom like preaching about be like these dead people. <laughs> uh, that's quite a catechesis. This is also catechesis. It's also something not just after you're received, but there was a continuation even after it because of the way they did things. Uh, you then would basically uh, baptize with holy water and then chrismate with basically oil. Uh, there's also wine involved as well. Uh, I haven't seen this actually yet myself. I've seen a lot of videos and I've looked at the right, but he then, the, the bishop will go around uh, basically bless the entire place and also like chrismate. Uh, you can see these long poles uh, with like a sponge on the end of it where they go around and do the sign of the cross all over the church. So there's a whole rite and only bishops can do that. Priests can't do that. Uh, the other thing is bless and consecrate antimensians. Do you know what an antimensian is? It's on the altar. Have you ever watched? You might not be able because I'm a little wide. Uh, if you can see, like if I have the, the gospel book is laying down right over the Antimension. At some point, basically when the, I get the gospel back after the gospel reading, I will put it up, other, you know, and then there is this. I'll preach and then you might see me unfolding something. What I'm unfolding is basically uh, there's the iloton, which covers the intimension that I'm unfolding. And then uh, uh, when we, uh, the next litany after the, the homily, where the bishop is 
basically commemorated, I will fold down the Antimension and kiss where his signature, because his signature is on every Antimension saying, I, this is a valid, al not altar, because Antimension basically means like instead of an altar, <laughs> instead of a table, basically, because so I could do, if I have the Antimension of Blessing, I could do it outside, right? Because that wasn't, and that would have to be, an, I would have to get a Bishop's Blessing to even do that in a consecrated church, so. But what you have, do you know what the Antimension is, like what is on the Antimension? Is that where you do the consecration? Right, so the gifts will eventually be brought over that. It's to catch anything, because you also see me trying to, like, I will pull it and do this to try and gather any possible particles of our Lord's body so to consume it so that there's nothing left. Do you know what's on the Antimension? So yes, there is a relic that is sewn and wax sealed into the Antimension as well. This is why we're doing this class is partly to just like fill in things and so you can see how everything fits together. Yeah, Titus, Paul's not writing about this to Titus, but this all reflects like what's going on. I don't know. I'd have to ask Syasa. Syasa is the slang for basically central headquarters. <laughs> this is just a commentary at the Orthodox camping trip in Kentucky last weekend. That's why Josh told me that Father Stephen had to run and get a relic before he could do divine liturgy on Sunday. He had to go that get was, an antimentium. An antimentium. Yeah, he, he could not go. He could. We, a priest cannot serve a liturgy without antimentium, unless you're in the gulags. Then there's a whole other situation. Okay. But like normatively, you have to have the, the blessing and approval of the bishop to have a valid Eucharist. I can't just willy-nilly do whatever I want. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I was just telling her, in the Catholic Church, we have the cloth they pull up, but it, I don't think it has a relic in it because we actually have people in the church, volunteers, who wash them for the priest. Do you, who, do you ever wash your antimonium? That's why I keep it clean. I need to get a new one because it still has Archbishop Dimitri's signature on it. So, but that causes a whole, like, chain react, like, it's fine in this situation right now, but it's one of those things that I need to say, hi, I would like Archbishop Alexander to sign a new intervention. So they are, they, the relics would be taken out and they would be burned. That's how it is disposed of. It's just like with icons and other things or damaged like vestments, I'm going to burn them. I have a stack of things that I'm going to burn. And it's starting to feel like burning season. <laughs> yeah. So what's on the Antimension is actually an icon, an iconic presentation of the deposition, like the bringing Christ down off the cross. You also have the, the evangelist in the corners. There's different ways of uh, doing this. But what you're basically doing, you're doing the, the Eucharist on an icon of our Lord being taken off the cross. So the epitaphios, which is the, the shroud, we'll say shroud is probably a better English way to say it, epitaphios. Uh, I'm forgetting what the Slavonic is. Pachanitsa. Uh, that we bring out during Holy Week. That is our Lord basically dead, like, in the tomb, in the sepulcher, right? So he's just, this is Mary uh, taking him down off the cross. Yes. So going back to Antimentium, mm -hmm. um, 
And you said the church wasn't consecrated, but the Antimentians is consecrated. Yes. And that's how we're able to have the Eucharist. Eucharist. Yep. We still need an Antimentian even if we have a blessed altar. But, because that is the kind of sign. Because you could have some, I mean, this is what's happening in Ukraine and other places. You'll have people who would like take over a church who are not validly ordained. And this has been happening. This, ha- this is <laughs> historically, you can go back. We don't have to just use Ukraine. We can go back, like, you get the Persians invading uh, Eastern Byzantium and uh, taking over churches. And then you have uh, a church that we're not in communion with, an historian church, who they then will use the church. So it's a consecrated altar, but. There's no bishop antimension. So if the church was on fire, or there was an issue or a flood or something, I would come, would see about fire exactly. Right? I'm not saying I have to, the bishop would say, go kill yourself. <laughs> but the thing, if there was an issue, like say if we had a huge black mold problem where we're like, we can't do church here anymore. I would go in and take all of the stuff out of the altar. It wouldn't just sit in there. So on the altar, besides the intimation, I would take the intimation out, the gospel out, and then take uh, in the tabernacle, there is consecrated uh, body and blood. Because that is how, if you are sick and I come to the hospital or, and bring you communion or uh, et cetera, that is where it is stored on, in the tabernacle on the altar. So it's like Roman Catholic where you, you know, there's a devotion, kind of the tabernacle. It's just our tabernacle is not as visible typically and historically neither was roman churches either but that is also part of the reason why you cross yourself as you are passing the the plane as it were of the, the with the altar because on the altar is jesus body and blood the tabernacle is always on the altar or it's always on the side you always it's always on the altar no, yeah, yeah, no 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 it's always on the altar so when you take the cup after communion mm-hmm. you go to the side That is going to be consumed. So the what is in the tabernacle was consecrated on Holy Thursday, which is the morning of the uh, liturgy celebrating the institution of the Eucharist. So at that, you can do it different ways, but you basically take uh, a uh, a lamb, or you can take a part of the lamb, which is the cut uh, part of the bread, right? We can go through the post committee at some point, the preparation for all of this stuff, so you can see. Uh, and I would take and I would uh, make the little pieces that I normally do. But then what I would do, and this is why Thursday, Holy Thursday morning is a little bit longer, I will take, there's people do this in different ways, uh, but I will take, I take a, the spoon and I, with a, just a little bit of his blood and I just touch it to every little piece that I've made. And I basically cover it, leave it on the altar, to dry out so it's dry so it doesn't go bad right because otherwise it would grow mold <laughs> which is always one of the challenges with pre-sanctified things because it's a wet moist thing in a humid atmosphere so dry that out and then i will put it basically into the tabernacle put it into a holding case and put it in the tabernacle so all year round is from that one day unless i've run out and then i would do it at a liturgy but the, the idea is that you do it at a holy thursday because that's the institution of the Eucharist. This is what part of the reason why we're doing this. <laughs> well, we did. What time is it? <laughs> we didn't even actually get into the first verse per se, but we're talking about the the, the structure of what's going on. Uh, I'm fine with that. I hope you are okay with that too. But we are in doing this. Uh, I want to because we have to set the stage to be able to then 
delve into this to be able to get a better understanding of what is going on uh, and then what it's ask, asking of us. So I'll say one thing that this is asking of us, all of this, is to start. There are, there are plans out there. You can read the lectionary. You can pick up, like, read the Bible in a year. There's Orthodox versions of this, too. I don't really care if you use a Protestant, Roman Catholic version. If you're reading scripture, that's good, <laughs> period, right? Uh, if you come across something and you're confused, the, uh, you might say, well, what do the fathers say? I've had somebody email me this. What does the father say about this one verse in Revelation or this one verse in Jeremiah? And I'm like, it's not really how it works where, <laughs> uh, where I can like get down to the reason this sentence says this is da-da-da-da. I can give maybe look and like a broader thing. Uh, but this is not, that's a kind of misunderstanding of how scripture is supposed to work. Scripture as a kind of sacramental encounter with Christ, it has information, uh, and that is important. You have to know something, just like you have to, in a marriage or friendship, you have to know the other person, right? The basic outline of their life, who their parents are, their kid, like, but then the actual transformative aspect of that is something different. You're not just getting information, but you're encountering the person wherever they're actually at. And so the goal of scripture is the encounter with Christ, the transformation of self. Uh, and I especially, what I would suggest before the next time we do this is just read Titus 1 through 3 a few times. And then you can just choose something like, I was talking about the slave of God or apostle of Jesus Christ or hope of eternal life of a God who cannot lie. And that could be something that you just reflect on through the day, Right. I serve a God who doesn't lie, who is going to be present, who is going is my hope, my my, uh, who I have faith in. Not like maybe the relationships where I've been burnt in the past. God's not like that. And I know this because of the testimony of not only Israel, but of Jesus being raised from the dead by his Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, etc. Right? Like you can break down uh, these things to be able to then take that through your day. Because it's, let's be honest, praying to God... And just kind of expressing your emotions is, is, you can do that for maybe a few minutes, maybe seconds. Maybe I'm reflecting being a guy there. <laughs> if there's something happening, that's where our lament and we can direct that. But if it's just kind of like life, we, we will dry out and then we don't have anything to do. But we need content from without to remind us to be present, to be able to help us actually uh, draw close to him. So that it could be the theme of the Jesus prayer that we're doing, right? Like, I am Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, right? I am the slave of God. What does this mean? Any other last questions before we close? I have one more question. Yeah. So interesting. I'm, on the Intimentian, because there has to be a relic in it, with all the Orthodox churches in the whole world, and all of this, all of these, all of our churches have to have this on their altar. Is there like a a, um, a reservoir of relics? Where do these relics? They come from the re the saints. Right. Uh, no, I, I know. You. So, for example, a lot of OCA churches have a lot of. Uh, relics that well we would have inherited it's kind of like you inherit a line of bishops and priests right so you inherit these and so there's churches that will go defunct or that get abandoned because well 
hostile forces take over an area and go back to like sixth century right. in Jerusalem, right? Like, so you have in a lot of OCA churches, just kind of like if you look at the relics that we have that are out for veneration, mm-hmm. it reflects that we're a very OCA church, right? St. Alexis Toth, yeah. St. <laughs> Herman of Alaska, yeah. St. Elizabeth the New Martyr. Like we, so you'll have, and there's certain saints especially because of the, their closeness to us, there might be in the Antimensian a third century martyr along with somebody else. That does happen, uh, I, I need to ask. But typically what you'll have is they will do a whole bunch of Antimensians, is my understanding, and it'll be like St. Jacob of Alaska and St. Herman of Alaska. Or I'm sure some Antimensians that go back, it's got, you know, 16th century Russian saints or, you know, okay. who pushed out into... Like Russia did the same. We had our manifest destiny to the west. They did theirs to the east, and they had Saint Stephen of Perm. They have all these saints that were basically learning the local languages and serving in those places. So, okay. there is a kind of constant reservoir, especially in this past century where we had a whole lot of martyrdoms. Yeah, a whole lot. So, okay, thank you. Yep. Any and other the questions? Relics are also small, really tiny. Yeah. Yes, you can do. Yes. So, for example, I would like to get, uh-oh, Alex. <laughs> I would like for us to get a few other, I know somebody got a relic of St. Dionysius, uh, the Aeropagite. Four-year-olds. Uh, and, I, and then you break them off. Most of our relics come from relics from St. John's in Atlanta. Okay. Can we see it? Can we see that? You want to see the relics or the Intimensian? Yeah, I can bring out the Intimensian. Yeah. Let's say a prayer and then I'll go get my epithelion on and get it. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.